Hello, Combi Nation. My name is Subi Sade. I've spent over a decade in medical device, pharma, and combination product development. Our industry feels complicated sometimes. Drugs, devices, clinical trials, submissions, sterilization, validation, design control, risk management, market access, reimbursement. The list goes on. My goal is mastery. So this podcast is to ask questions I have to people who may have the answers. Each week on the Combinate Podcast, I talk to someone about their area to further understand and simplify. Whether you're a pharma person trying to understand the next wave of products, or a device person trying to navigate a pharma system you're unfamiliar with, or a newbie in both areas, I invite you to listen, and together we can simplify by combinating. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Combinate Podcast. I'm your host, Subi Sade, and I say we're graced and honored by our guest, I think, every show, but truly today, we are graced and honored today by Joanna Gallant, who is a well-known training leader. I reached out to Joanna because of an article that she wrote years ago that really hit me in my heart and and was a perspective-changing article. The article is called Someone, Everyone, or No One Who Owns Quality. And for me personally, I was working through my first quality manual and it helped me kind of question some of the beliefs that I had around quality responsibility, management responsibility, and look at it in a in a maybe more mature light. But we're going to talk about that in this conversation. Welcome, Joanna. Thank you, Sue. Be glad to be here. Yeah. Can can you maybe go through your background? Because you started out in product development and then moved to training, which which I was questioning you about before we started recording. But I don't think little kids in their kindergarten class are like, when I grow up, I want to go into training, let alone people in Right. In Nobody wants to be a GMP trainer when they grow up, right? Yeah. <laughs> so to give you a little bit of background on me and who I am, this year actually marks 30 years in the industry for me, which I'm amazed by because I never thought I would like something enough to stick with it this long. I started out actually as a temporary working in product development, and I had responsibility for basically the front and the back end of the laboratory work that was done to look at product stability and assign expiration dates on new products that we were working for. So I had a lot of responsibility for a storage facility, a bunch of pieces of equipment for setting up studies, for getting supplies into the lab. And then the back end was after the lab folks did the testing, I was charged with reviewing the data, making sure that the testing was appropriate. If there were any issues there, I had to report what they were. If there were product submissions that we were working on, I was putting together the stability tables with all of the data in them and, and doing all the comparisons to specifications and all that. So a lot of the quality stuff that you might do just from a development slant, I managed the records that went into the documentation area after the completion of the studies and all of that stuff. So after that, I moved into a training role when one opened up and I took my development experience and learned a lot about product manufacturing and the quality controls overseeing that. Um, I had worked with a lot of those folks from the development side. 
but now I get to do this from the quality side and focus more on what is the actual expectations when the, when the FDA is involved? What are we looking for? What needs to happen? How do we do things? So I get to learn a lot about that. At one point, probably, I don't know, 12 or 13 years in, we get a license to medical device. So now I had to learn medical device regulations. And that then took me towards a different job where I went to another company. And the company that I started at was really, really good, really strong people. They had been doing their jobs for a very long time. They had been around when GMP happened <laughs> and had to implement what all those systems were. And I made the jump from that company to another company that was a lot younger, was it was actually a medical device company, but it was chemical-based medical devices instead of the more physical, like catheter-type medical devices. And they were a lot younger. They didn't have a lot of the experience. And they actually were not in particularly good shape. They ended up under consent decree. So I went from a really good, strong-quality background company to a not really good, strong-quality background company. <laughs> And ended up working with a bunch of different folks there. So there I got my fingers into medical devices. I got my fingers into combination products. I got my fingers into biologics, HCTP type products. And I also got to learn what it's like to go under consent decree and work with a bunch of consultants and all of that, which is not a pleasant experience. I highly recommend avoiding it if it's at all possible, but it's a great learning experience. And I spent about five years there and decided after working with the consent decree folks that considering I was teaching the consent decree folks a lot of stuff, that I was on the wrong side of the equation. I didn't need to be in industry. What I needed to do was be in the consulting world. So I went out on my own and I've been out on my own since 2011. And what I do right now is I am a, I am my own company. I am Joanna Delant Training Associates, LLC, and I have a set of clients that I work with on my own. I've also subcontracted to other organizations, largely when uh, there are warning letter remediations and things like that. I've gone in and done training system audits for people and told them how to fix things. Other folks have had me come in and do individual training courses for them. I've had people ask me to come in and help them shore up their processes before they go in for product approval, build out their training systems for them. What do they need for GMP training? And I find myself doing a lot of that work. And since COVID hit, I've also been doing a lot of remote course development work where I'm developing a lot of e-learning material for people. So that's background on me and where I've been and what I do now. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm I'm curious going back to you mentioned the the training of the consultants during the whole consent decree yes. episode. At, I mean, you said it was was that whole thing over the course of five years, or was the consent decree just a, the a, consent decree was the last or, two or so, if I remember correctly. Last two. What what was it? What was it like training the consultants? Was it explaining to them processes or? You were actually teaching them things that they they themselves didn't know. I, I, a little I, bit I'm, of I'm trying to I'm trying to understand like mm -hmm. in in that situation, what is the point of consultant if you're if the person that you're hiring to come help you get out of the mess like you're training them on their job? <laughs> right, right. So the point of the training the consultants was first of all, you have things that people need to know to just be on the site. 
from a safety standpoint, from a basic requirements, you know, folks. How, how we do things. Yes. Yeah. What are the expectations that the company has if you are going to be on our site and in our facilities, both from a safety standpoint, from a regulatory standpoint, GMP and otherwise. But then also what I found myself talking to the consultants about mostly was teaching them the training stuff. They would come in and talk about things and they didn't understand how training actually worked because mm. nobody had actually seen it done well and correctly. And they would talk to me about, well, this is what you need to do. And I would argue back, no, that's not the right way to do things because ABC. Oh, okay. Now I understand. Well, why wouldn't you do this? Because that. Oh, okay. So it was that kind of a, a conversation back and forth with the folks who were coming in. And they had expertise in different places. If they would be a capital system expert or they would be a manufacturing expert or something like that. But their expertise was based on their past experience. Mm. If nobody is doing training well, then they don't have a good training background to build on. Does that yeah. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So that that that's super helpful in clarifying. So you were you were not training them on their competency area. Um, that's what they were coming in for. You were training them on how training is actually done well, not Correct. not not whatever, you know, minimal experience they may have had tacked onto their actual area Correct. expertise. Okay. What, so this is going to sound like a funny question, but when, when SOPs are say approved and they, there's an, there's a, there's a period generally speaking between approved and effective that allows for training. There's impact assessments that are done for who shall be trained to what level shall be, shall they be trained? And does it have to be an on the job training or does it have to, you, you, so on, so right. I'm, I'm preaching to the converted. I feel like you Correct. obviously, you, you obviously know all this stuff, but I, I guess the question is, aren't people actually trained if they're reading something and signing off that they're trained? And I'm going to give you a kind of a funny answer and say, it depends. <laughs> yeah. I would like to tell you that everybody does that impact assessment and figuring out who needs OJT and who can read and, and whatever else. But what I have seen in reality is that doesn't always happen. It may happen for a new procedure, but that's about it. Okay. So when you have changes to procedures, a lot of times the thinking is, oh, well, it's just a change. They can just read it. And then they're trained. And that's not necessarily true. It might be. If I'm pulling a specific reagent out of circulation and replacing it with another one, I can just read that in the SOP. Because when I actually go to do the job, that reagent shouldn't be in that area anymore because it's been pulled out of the area. It's no longer appropriate for use. So all I need to be aware of, which I can obtain by reading, is that that reagent changed and there's going to be a new one there when I go to pull it. Mm. Now, if I change my process and I put in a new piece of equipment and I have somebody read the SOP, but they don't actually go back and learn how to use that piece of equipment now that it's been changed out in the process, they're not going to be able to do that job based on simply reading the SOP. I mean, mm. they could be, but it's highly unlikely. When it comes to training systems, what is your sniff test, so to speak, to see if 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 
the trading situation is in a good place or it's not? Is there a particular oh. set? Is it like, show me somebody's job record or I'm just curious, like, what is a, what is a good measure? Well, one of the first things that I'll ask when I'm looking at, at systems, when I'm just talking to people about them, one of the first things I ask is about what they do for assessment. And that's usually a tripping point right there if they're not doing things well. When you say assessment, what do you mean? What I mean is how are they assessing the training that they provide? That's usually how I'll ask it. And sometimes I get, well, we're not really, which is a big screaming red flag. Sometimes I'll get, well, we have quizzes on SOPs or we have quizzes on classes and things like that. And the quizzes on SOPs is also a little bit of a flag for me. Oh, really? But, yes. What I'm looking for is something about an on-the-job training program where they're actually looking at ability to perform. Because the reality is, if my training program is working, and you alluded to this earlier on, there is a difference between trained and competent. Okay, trained is I can pull out a record. Competent is can I actually do it? And do um, it <laughs> yeah. So when it comes to OJTs, like I started out my career working in on hardware devices. Mm -hmm. Some of them were, especially in the early stages, we say taped together with, with duct tape and bubble yep. right? <laughs> until, until, until they became commercialized, right? The early units in development. And so in, in situations where there's complex assembly or, or something like that, I completely understand the ability to perform being okay. You did it right. Clearly. Uh, that, that, that's, that's obviously important. Also, when you have somebody executing on a test method, it's an important part of test method validation even, but what about when it comes to, cause, cause, okay, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask the question this way. Do you know H James Harrington? From, I'm not familiar. He, he, he used to be the, the president of ASQ at one point, and he wrote, he, he wrote a lot of books, but one of my favorite books of his is on poor quality costs. He, he talks about this concept of, of blue collar error versus white collar error. Okay. And that, that, that when an operator makes a mistake, they're, they're doing it at an operation that is at the widget level. But when somebody's making white collar error, they're yep. doing it at their level. I guess when it comes to ability to perform in the white collar environments where somebody's doing, I know you've written a lot on root cause analysis. Did you get to root cause appropriately? that's there's some there's some finesse there even if you correct. follow demaic or whatever so correct i guess how, how would you address the more white collar say activities so the more white collar activities as you're referring to them but the approach to dealing with that is mentoring more so than a training in some cases okay so one of the areas where you have some of that finesse, if you will, is batch record review or laboratory data review, something like that, right? Where you need to have the person who is looking at that have a knowledge bank built up that can assess when things are good, bad, or otherwise. Something's out of the ordinary or whatever else. 
there's some hard and fast rules, but then there's some things that you need to learn as you go. So you can do some OJT on that to a point and give people some type of an assessment. Like one of the things that we do pretty regularly with folks doing batch record review is we build out a mock batch record with errors in it. And can they find it? You know, we give them this thing and there's five errors in the batch record. In their review, they should call out those five errors. Plus anything else that might look a little funny to them or whatever. If they can't call out those five errors that are fairly common errors that we might see coming out of, out of manufacturing or whatever, then maybe they're not quite ready yet. So there's a baseline there. But then going on, they've got that baseline to work off of so that when something is out of the ordinary, they can call that out. When you get into some of the other things where it's decision-making, then there's some mentoring involved and some conversations, like walking someone through, how would you do this? Or working with them on something and letting them take the lead when you think they're ready to be making the decisions and making the calls. But then you're still there to mentor them and say, yep, that was the right call. Yep, that was good. Go away, come back with a plan. Tell me how you would deal with this. Let's walk through the plan before you do it. That kind of a thing. Do you, do you find, cause that's, that's good. And I've, I've seen, I've seen things like that before, particularly on things like cage impact assessments. Like, was this one done well, did it include, or, or a notification to management or a anything that's typically a quality type record and event, oh. for example, you know, cap or whatever. There's, there's the concept of progressive overload when, when you talk about bodybuilding i.e. you don't go to the gym and just try to max effort. Uh -huh. You go and you do say eight reps at a certain weight. And then yep. a few days later you go on and you try to do nine. And then a few days later you try and do 10. And uh -huh. you know, it's, it's, it's little, little wins. There's a, there's kind of a patience reward uh -huh. push pull to that. I'm just, I'm wondering like for, for, for let's use the example of batch record review. Do yep. you, typically like have them review a section and then a bigger section and then the full section, or is it like you're going to be trained on batch record review and find the five errors in this hundred page document or whatever? Yeah. So what I've seen done in the past when folks have built this, what we typically try and do is stage it the way that you described. Now, when you think about batch records, right? you're not just releasing final product, which is going to have a very large batch record. You're going to have individual components. You might have in-process materials and things like that that are going to have much smaller batch records. So you would start them off with the components and things like that that are going to be smaller, quicker, easier wins. So the, the short of it is what you're talking about here is a structured on-the-job plan where the model when I came into industry was, hey, you're here. Terrific. We've been so excited to have you. Here's your book of SOPs. Let me know when you're done reading. Yeah. And you have 500 SOPs and you spend the first two weeks of your life reading SOPs. And two weeks later, you have no idea what you read. And when you go to do the task, you have to pull the SOP and go through training anyway, right? I'll tell you a hilarious story. I actually haven't thought about this in a long time, but I was starting a new role once a new job, I should say, it was a new company. I go in on day one and my boss had forgotten to order my laptop in time. Uh -huh. I think, I think, or, or the admin, somebody forgot to order my laptop in time. 
Yeah. So I had to read all my SOP on paper uh -huh. and they had, they had overhauled their entire SO, all of their SOPs because of a warning letter. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we're talking thousands of pages at this point right. and I had no laptop, so I couldn't do it electronically. Mm -hmm. And so, because you said pile, but here's our book of SOPs. I literally had piles of paper for yep. my first, it took three weeks for them to give me a laptop for some reason, but literally like more than like reams of paper of SOPs mm -hmm. that yep. I was reading through. And it was just so crazy. Yeah. Um, anyways. Yeah, so the plan there to deal with that so that you don't have somebody spending two weeks of their life reading SOPs that they're just going to have to turn around and do again is to have a structured plan for when someone comes in. And this is actually a lot of what I do with folks. When we go in and we're looking at their OJT process, uh, we overhaul things to break it down so that I'm not handing somebody 500 procedures when they first walk in the door and here, read all of these and we'll pick and choose what we're gonna do day by day. We put a plan together and say, you're gonna start with these things. So these 400 SOPs that you're not gonna touch for a year, don't even look at them yet because you're not gonna touch them for a year. And those will come up when you need them. Here's the it's first five that you need to be able to get moving on something. Read these five, then we'll talk about them. Here's the first task you're going to do. That involves these three SOPs. You're going to learn these as we go. So take a read. Let's go see what happens in the lab when we do this. I'm going to put you through trying this. You're going to do all of this. And within a week, they've got a few SOPs and something that they can actually be doing under their belt. How do you, I'll ask this question before we go into human error. How, how much of say quality errors, is it background and understanding and how much of it is SOPs and training? Because look, looking at quality, like it's conformance to requirements to use the Philip Crosby hmm. definition, if it's not a requirement. Mm -hmm. What did you not satisfy type of thing? And if, if, for example, there are, this is particular, I mean, we, we, uh, we were talking before we started recording about the blue collar error and white collar error and that, mm -hmm. but particularly the white collar spaces, there's a lot of it that is finesse and a lot of it that's style. And sometimes certain companies bring in things from other industries and, and have their own approaches that are incongruent with maybe some other companies mm -hmm. where it's not really a regulation-based task. There's, there's, there's so many of product characterization to use an example or test method validation, or there's no set standard way of executing those tasks. There are tools and techniques and approaches. And so from that perspective, you know, how much of it is the SOP was not clear enough versus I didn't have the right background. I didn't have the right experience and so on. That's hard to say because it's really going to depend on the specific. What I can tell you is I have seen a number of places where the procedures don't give people enough detail in all places where necessary. Okay. So if you're getting to the point where you're writing an SOP where it says hold widget X in your right hand while you hold tool Y in your left hand, 
I hope I said that correctly. We're probably down into too much detail, but I can't leave it as vague as watch the piece of equipment. I have to get the SOP to the point that someone who is trained to perform the task can pick up the SOP as a reference, follow that and do the task correctly and reproducibly each time, irregardless of the number of times that they've done it or how many different people are performing that specific task. When you get to things that are knowledge-based, that tends to be more judgment activities where people don't have a clear standard to work off of. So if I am deciding whether something meets a specification, I have a clear standard. If I have a number range between three and five and my result is four, that's a pretty clear yes, I've got it, or no, I'm outside of that range if my number is two and a half, right? But if I have to make a decision of is this investigation thorough enough, that's going to re require someone who has had some background with what types of questions might get asked about this. What questions should I plan to head off with this documentation? Because if you think about the purpose of documentation in the industries that we're in, we're handing it to an auditor to show that we've done what we're supposed to do, that we've solved issues and whatever else. So I need to be able to think through that issue enough in the same way that an auditor might to say, have I addressed all of the things the auditor would pick up? And that comes down to some level of experience and or mentoring from somebody along with some training. As far as mentoring goes, have you seen or, or created formal mentoring programs where there's an expectation to check box X activity, Y activity, Z activity? Like how is that, how is mentorship something that's measurable? I know there are some companies that have done some formal mentoring programs where they set out some targets and some goals that they want people to meet. I've not actually been involved in any of those. Mm. So my mentoring experience and the work that I've always done with that has always been informal in some way, shape, or form. But if you're working with a manager who is mentoring their people, right, part of management responsibility is to make sure that tasks are being done to a level that assures the quality of the end result. So. Part of my job as a manager is to be working with and mentoring my people if they aren't performing tasks to the level that I would expect them to or that I would want them to. And that may be I can set some goals as a manager for their annual performance reviews, annual objectives, things like that, that I can measure them against based on where I see that the individual needs improvement. And you can also see some of the information on some of the projects and courses that I've given over the, the time that I've been out on my own. Awesome. Thank you, Joanna. Well, Joanna, truly honored to meet you. I told you before for, for a long time in my, on my last computer, your article was like tattooed on my browser. And I'd go to it from time to time and glean something different. So I really appreciate your writing 
you've definitely impacted the way that I look at things and I really appreciate the work you do. Joanna, where can people find you? So I have a website, jgta.net. And on my website, you'll see my current information. You'll see copies of my articles. You'll see other items that I have up on my site for sale. You also have a contact form there for me that has my email and my phone number if you're so inclined to get in touch with me. Thank you for having me. And I'm so happy that you found use in the articles. It's really nice to know. Yeah, so thank we'll you have, for having me. We'll have you on soon again. Bye, everybody.